My name is Jeff Forrester. I'm one of the seven elders here at Elam Evangelical Free Church, and I'm happy to be with you this morning and being given the privilege of speaking in Ryan's stead. I've been thinking a lot about salvation lately. I've thought about why some people endure in the faith and why some flee. Have you wondered why some people seem to leave the faith? They may know the scriptures. They may have attended church regularly, maybe even sat next to you. Maybe they have famous names and you've known them from afar. And then one day they announce they don't believe. What happened? On the surface, it can appear sudden. And I don't have answers or explanations pertaining to specific people, nor am I going to give you a generic answer that can be applied broadly. What puzzles me is how someone could be in relationship with a perfect person, speaking of Jesus Christ, and then declare, they're done. Jesus, who is a friend and mentor. Jesus, who holds us in our sorrows. Jesus, who we can pour forth our hearts and all of our anxieties to. Jesus, the one who connects us to one another. Jesus, who knows us better than we know ourselves. Jesus, the creator of all things, the Lord of glory. How do you leave a relationship like that? Unless, maybe, relationship wasn't the focus. I ask these questions not because I have answers for why specific people turn away, but because this directs me to the importance of relationship when we talk about, think about, and do something about salvation. Which leads me to my next question. If you were a superhero, how would you save the world? The answer? Power. Superpowers. Maybe you think of yourself as, uh, or if you did think of yourself as Superman, uh, you might do like you did back in the 1978 movie where you flew around the earth backwards really, really, really fast until it reversed rotation, thereby reversing time, going in reverse, and just like that, you'd take us back to the Garden of Eden so we could do a mulligan. Or, if you were Wonder Woman, you could use your lasso of truth to compel the serpent in the garden to tell no lie and therefore thwart his plan to corrupt the human race in the first place. I mean, really, have you ever tried to lasso a snake? But not me. I favor Spider-Man. I'd be swinging from building to building, slinging those spidey webs everywhere. And by the way, that sound is trademarked. Use of that sound without express written permission from Jeff will be considered a violation of trademark law. Unauthorized use of that sound may result in litigation, headaches, dry mouth, joint pain, skin irritation, numb lips, and I won't be your friend anymore. Unfortunately, I don't think any of these ideas as carefully thought out as they are would be especially helpful, even paired with a full bucket of buttered popcorn and a side of Twizzlers. <sighs> I'm so glad that God is in charge of this. Clearly, you don't want me anywhere near the planning stage or the execution stage or possibly even this stage at the moment. How did God choose to accomplish salvation? God used his superpower, suffering. He gave us Jesus. Jesus suffered and died in our place for our sins 
and his sacrifice on the cross was accepted by God. God, perfectly just, upheld his character by punishing sin. Jesus, perfectly obedient, honored his Father in love and made a way for each of us to become children of God. But speaking more generally then, how did he accomplish salvation? God chose to save us by and through and for relationship. Well, where did this come from? To investigate that, let's look back, back to the beginning. In the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In that passage, to whom does the Word refer? Go ahead and say it. A little louder. Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, yes. It's okay to say his name, even in church. (laughs) This passage from the Gospel of John is an echo from the beginning. The beginning of Genesis, the beginning of Scripture, the beginning of all creation. Genesis at the beginning reads, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. If you look at those two passages and join them together, There at the beginning of all things was the Father, the Son, identified here as the Word, and the Spirit of God. All three were present in the beginning. God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In theological terms, we call this the Trinity. He is one God with one nature in three persons. He does not take on a different form for different situations. That idea is a heresy called modalism. Again, all three are here at creation. And we see later in, during Jesus' baptism, we get another glimpse of the three members of the Trinity joined together again. Luke tells us about that and says, Now it came about when all the people were baptized that Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven. Thou art my beloved son. In thee I am well pleased. All three members of the Godhead, Jesus the Son being baptized, the Holy Spirit descending from heaven, and the Father speaking from heaven. God exists in relationship with himself. Each member, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have distinct roles in relationship to one another. We see this worked out in salvation. The Father plans and orchestrates the work of salvation. The Son obeys the Father and goes into the world to carry out the Father's plan. The Holy Spirit, there at the physical conception of Jesus, also convicts the world of sin and indwells all those who trust in Jesus. Each working in distinct ways, each in complete harmony with the others. In John chapter 8, Jesus speaks of relationship with his Father when he says, I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. And again, in John chapter 14, Jesus explains to his disciples just before he goes to the cross, saying, 
I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Jesus speaks of his Father and of the Holy Spirit as distinct persons. God exists in perfect harmony. He exists in perfect relational unity. And then there was man. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God spoke. Let there be light, and there was light. God spoke. Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and it was so. God spoke. Let the earth sprout vegetation, and it was so. God spoke. Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens, and it was so. God spoke. Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God spoke. Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, and it was so. Then something new happened. Genesis 1, 26, 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis chapter 2, we read, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day when the Lord God made earth and heaven, now no shrub of the field was yet on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. I imagine the wonder at what God was doing. Were the angels abuzz with excitement? Look, Gabriel, look at what the Lord is doing. Michael, what is this new thing that God is doing? No longer is God at a distance speaking into creation. God spoke not to creation, but in a relational conversation with the Trinity. And their collective counsel determined to make something special, the crowning glory of creation. Out of this came man, carefully and intimately formed, created to reflect the glory of God himself, and uniquely crafted to enjoy fellowship with his creator. In my mind's eye, I picture God approaching his creation, coming into close proximity, reaching down, tenderly gathering dust from the earth and forming it carefully in his hands. And then in the most intimate act yet, the Lord God breathed into him the breath of life, the first man, the first breath. The lifeless Adam miraculously becomes a living being. 
This moment also seems to me a foreshadowing, a foreshadowing of the time when Jesus would draw near to his creation, taking on flesh in the womb of a young virgin named Mary by the work of the Holy Spirit. Man, as spoken by the Godhead, made in our image according to our likeness. Man was made uniquely, made uniquely in the image of God and for relationship with him. Going on in Genesis, it says, And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Then the man said, At last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, but they were not ashamed. Man and woman were formed in the relational wisdom of the Trinity. Man and woman were formed for relationship with one another. And man and woman were formed for relationship with God, their creator. They were in the garden, placed there to cultivate it and keep it. God walked with them in relationship in the midst of the garden. And then there was sin. You know the story. The serpent shows up and says to Eve, Hey, baby, check out this fruit over here. And Eve's like, God said don't eat it, or even touch it, or you'll die. And the serpent's like, uh, 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 um, uh, uh, no you won't. It's, uh, like, really good and stuff, uh, and, uh, it'll, like, uh, make you smart or something. And Eve's like, I do like fruit. Eve distracted and distrusted God and thought he was keeping something good from them. She grabs the forbidden fruit, and Adam, who's right there, says, Whoa, that looks really tasty. Got any more? The jig is up. It was a good run while they had it, but now it's all over. Sin enters the hearts of history of mankind. That disobedience breaks relationship. Trust is broken, and sin enters the world. The effect of sin mars creation. Weeds, pain in childbearing, groaning of creation... And sin is passed from parent to child. It's not long before that sin grows strong and becomes murder, killing a fellow image bearer by the name of Abel, son to Adam, son to Eve. From, from parent to child, things just got worse. You don't need to be a genius. In fact, it's probably better if you're not to know that we are reaping the harvest today planted by our ancestors long ago. The sinfulness of man continued in those days. And then days of Noah came quickly. 
Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So grieved was the heart of God, and so just and so just his nature, that upon seeing this, his intention was to blot out man and every other creature. But his loving kindness won the day, and Noah and his family were saved from destruction. God set his rainbow in the sky, a reminder of the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. Never again shall the waters become a flood to destroy all flesh. God's love for man endured. Then came the Tower of Babel, built from brick and tar and pride. The Lord God scattered them, but he did not destroy them. God chose Abraham to be the father of many nations, and it was Jacob, Abraham's grandson, whom the Lord God renamed Israel and from which came God's chosen people. The Israelites found provision under Joseph in Egypt. They multiplied greatly and were compelled into slavery by the king of Egypt, 400 years of servitude. But the Lord was with them. He raised up a deliverer by the name Moses. The Israelites were delivered from Egypt, the hand of Pharaoh, by God's miraculous might. Unfaithful to the Lord, the Israelites wandered in the desert while he sustained them through his loving kindness with manna from heaven and water from the rock. Even their clothing did not wear out during this 40-year span. God brought the Israelites, fulfilling his word into the promised land. God's love for man endured. Unfaithful were the ways of the Israelites, but God's love and forbearance was greater. The time of the judges and the oppression and violence that accompanied it came and went. God provided leadership during that interim period. Israel, God's wayward love, cried out to him for a king. Though God was their king, they wanted to be like the other nations. God counseled them, but they persisted and God relented. The result was Saul, a man of stature, a man after the people's own heart, wicked. Then God anointed David least in his clan, a man after God's own heart. After three kings, the days of the united kingdom of Israel were over, three and out. After good kings and bad kings and varying levels of faithfulness and unfaithfulness, Israel went into captivity, first Assyrian, then Babylonian, but Daniel and others were preserved and God was with them. Even during the over 400-year silent period between the prophets and the coming of Jesus, God's love endured. The people of Israel were God's chosen people, meant to be priests for the rest of the world, presenting the people to the Lord God Almighty. Their habitual unfaithfulness and ultimately their rejection of God's Son, Jesus, prevented this. And as Jesus lamented, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who have been sent to her, how often have I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Yet even today, God remembers his promises and has not abandoned Israel. She has a place and a role in times to come. God's love endures. God is long-suffering. His love and faithfulness to mankind are enduring and beyond measure. 
And so we come to God's salvation. And what do we need saving from? The answer, sin. Turning away from God and going our own way. And what do we need saving for? The answer, relationship with God. That's why sin is a problem. Yes, it's painful and causes a lot of unpleasantness, to put it mildly. Yet at its core, the most insidious effect that sin has has been to corrupt our ability for healthy relationship with our Creator. But God is steadfast in His love for mankind, and He will not be dissuaded from His course of action. 1 John 4.9 tells us, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, that we might live through Him. So, fitting to His character, God orchestrates a relational solution to sin's relational separation. His plan of salvation centers upon drawing near in relationship. Like at the creation of man, the Trinity of God comes together in all beauty and unity to do what only he can do and restore relationship with mankind. The Father plans the work of salvation. The Son obeys the Father. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and indwells believers. Yeah, you, I, we've got a sin problem. But more than that, we have a relationship problem. But we don't have to. Salvation is both simple and difficult. It's simple because it means asking for forgiveness and following Jesus. It's difficult because it means asking for forgiveness and following Jesus. At its core lives an attitude of humility, producing a movement of trust, which we call faith, into the person of Jesus. Faith leading to salvation. Romans 10:17 tells us, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans 10:9:10, 10, 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Let me ask you, do you feel the weight of all the wrong that you've done and all the evil that you've let linger in your mind and in your heart? Have you ignored the voice of God? Do you feel convicted by the very way you've been living? If you do, there is hope, and that hope is found in a person, Jesus the Christ, the hope of Israel and a beautiful name to the Gentiles. What to do in response? Well, in simple language, talk with God. Tell him why you're approaching him. Admit that your sin has caused a broken relationship with him. And then realize and proclaim that Jesus is your only hope, your only hope for restored relationship with God. Accept his payment on the cross for your sin. Turn away from sin welcoming Jesus as Lord or authority over your life. Salvation is simple and surrounded in mystery. Jesus describes this mystery to a dumbfounded Nicodemus one night. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it is coming from and where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Look closely here. Can you hear what Jesus is saying? He identifies one of the most intimate moments in life. A child being delivered from the womb into the arms of a joyful mother. That's what salvation is. From darkness to light, into the arms of love. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the door, the gate, the way. God has no other son. The only way to the Father is through relationship. That relationship was broken and is only restored through relationship with the Son. One of my favorite passages, Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among mankind by which we must be saved. Salvation is simple but difficult. We approach Jesus with nothing other than an attitude of humility, a position of utter helplessness, like an infant groaning for birth. There is no counting up of skills or abilities or ways that we may be able to assist the kingdom of God when we come to Jesus. We bring nothing but humility and a willing heart to him, and that he gladly accepts. When talking about salvation, there is a danger of which we need to be mindful, and that is an over-reliance upon a specific prayer a set of steps, a methodology for salvation. The danger there is in focusing on the moment. Were the right words said? Were all the basic elements present? Are you in? Are you out? Are you saved? Are you not? Tremendously important questions, truly, yet potentially leading to a shift in focus from an ongoing relationship with Jesus, which is what's needed, to a moment-in-time contract. An ongoing relationship with Jesus begins by entering into a relationship with Jesus. This is not the same thing as petitioning a judge for release from custody due to someone else paying your debt. Does that sound like a legal analogy? Yes, it's true. It's in Scripture. But that by itself is not complete. After beginning a salvation relationship with Jesus, what do I do? How do I walk forward? Dependence on Jesus is another way to live. But please note, when I said that, I didn't say Jesus shows us another way to live. That's common and popular. 
And it's true that we learn a lot from his example in Scripture. Yet again, it is an ongoing relationship with him, the person, not an isolated study of historical anecdotes we attempt to mimic. John 15, I am the true vine, Jesus says, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me he does, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And right there, the true vine, that's Jesus. His Father, the vine dresser, the one that cares for the vine, and the one that prunes when needed. We are branches. Don't be a branch that does not bear fruit that he takes away. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, Jesus says, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Remain in me and I in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Can you imagine a branch sitting off to the side of grapevines, just off by itself? You know what it's going to do, and that's nothing. It'll fall. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, but must remain in the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. John 10, 9 and 10 say, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He will go in and out and find pasture. Do you hear the picture being drawn here? It's a place of dwelling. It's a place of residence. It's not just asking him to solve a problem, the salvation problem. He's a place of residence, a place of dwelling. What are, what are other practical things? What else might this look like as I walk forward in a salvation relationship? Well, it's listening, listening to the heart of Jesus. It's asking him about the details of his heart in my sphere of influence. How does he want to interact with the people around me, and how does he want me to interact? It's praying for those in the body and those who are pre-believers. It's taking on his priorities even when they conflict with my own. It's meditating on his word. It's loving and worshiping God. It's loving myself and loving my neighbor as myself. It's spreading the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. It's thanking God for every good thing and yearning for the hope of heaven, which is Jesus himself against the backdrop of every malignant sin and corruption in this world. And sometimes it's just being still and knowing that he is God. Luke chapter 9 tells us, Jesus speaking, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me. Remember the picture of the fisherman? Told him to drop what they're doing and follow him. 
that's not just them then. That's us now. We're to drop the things that aren't important and follow him. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. You have goals and priorities and things that just don't match what he wants for you. That's saving your life. But whoever loses his life, who puts those things aside, for my sake, this is the one who will save it. For what good does it do to a person if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me, in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. This passage and so much more in Scripture points to a transformation, a reorienting of one's life. Luke is not describing Jesus as an add-on to help my life run more smoothly. This is hard, but it's simple. I'm going to move forward, move us forward into communion here in just a moment. And there's one last idea I want to give to you guys. And this is maybe my favorite way that the scriptures describe this position of a relationship with Jesus. And it's one single word. Abide. To dwell. Sojourn. Lodge. Continue. Remain. It means to remain stable or fixed in a state. To continue in a place. And that's to be our relationship with Jesus. Never ending. I'm going to read to you a selection of passages from the book of 1 John. They're not going to be on the screen. And you're actually welcome to close your eyes. I promise I won't walk around and poke you in the belly if you do. Um, I simply want you to relax and absorb these words from Scripture. Listen for the word abide. Hear the significance Listen for God to speak to your heart. What is he telling you? Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, 
so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he is in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love, the love that God has for us, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Go ahead and open your eyes. The call to salvation is a call to relationship. It's nothing less. Salvation is not complicated. It's rather simple for something that's so grand. We've messed up our relationship with God. It's so bad that there's no work that we can do to earn his favor. But the love of God is so great, he would rather die than be separated from us. And so he did. As we prepare for communion, in a moment I'm going to give you a, a brief period of time to talk with God. And maybe that means you need to talk with him about entering into a relationship with him. Asking for forgiveness for the sins you know of and maybe the sins you don't yet know of. He hasn't revealed those to you. Maybe you already are in relationship with him. And it's simply time to reflect and talk to him Maybe you know that you have not drawn close to him. And maybe you're feeling that urge, that desire to do just that. Don't let this moment go wherever you are in your relationship with him. Don't let this moment go. Time moves quickly and many things distract. So I'm going to ask in just a moment for you guys to Come down and grab the elements, the bread and the cup, and then return to your seats. I'll lead us and we'll take those together. And um, as you return to your seat, feel free to begin that time of reflection. And then I'll gather us together and we'll take communion together. So please come.